Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't going to tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. One of my favorite things that ever happens, and I'm not saying it happens all the time, but it happens often. I, I love pastor preaching. Pasture preaching, not pastor. Pasture preaching especially when it comes from at an unexpected time, from an unexpected place, from an unexpected person. And, you know, I, I don't see kids doing it as much nowadays as they used to, but, you know, it was a lot of fun whenever I was growing up 10 years ago that uh, you could walk by somebody who wasn't paying attention and flick their ear. You ever had God do that to you, though? Like, hey, are you paying attention? Boom. Well, that's what happened one day. We're riding across the pasture, me and, uh, me and Robert, and it was when I first really started helping him uh, a lot. And we're following some cows, and we're sitting there watching his dogs work, and um, we're having a visit, and I'm asking him about his dogs. And then uh, one of the dogs, Walker, who's kind of the patriarch of all of Robert's dogs. If you ever see uh, Walker, you ever heard the old joke that whenever I'll get to heaven, I want to come sliding in and, you know, cut up? And like, boy, I live life to the fullest, right? Oh, man, that's Walker. Walker kind of looks like a zombie dog. He'd been kicked in the face so many times in so many dog fights. I mean, this, this dog is just a walking scar. And he's getting old, and it's going to be a national day of mourning when uh, Walker goes just because of all the good dogs that he's produced and, and the work that he's done. And when I say produced, I'm not just talking about reproduction-wise. You know, Robert uses his dogs, his older dogs, to train the younger ones once they get to a, a certain spot. And Robert does do some work with them. And, um, but those older dogs know what Robert wants and knows the commands, so he just gives the commands to the older dogs and the younger ones follow and kind of learn by on-the-job training what this means. So Walker has produced a lot of dogs, even some of them that weren't his. He's had a hand in producing, and so we're riding along, and um, I asked Robert about Walker, and Robert kind of grins, and he goes, I nearly got rid of that dog seven times. I said, what do you mean got rid of it? He goes, you don't want to know. And he said, I, I hated that dog when I first got him. He wouldn't listen. He'd just, you know, run through cattle, just bite anything, and then chase an antelope during the middle of it. He said, I tied that dog to a T-post uh, several times, and then one time I was just going to leave him there the rest of the day, and he beat me back to the house because he chewed through the rope, so he had to start taking a chain and chaining Walker to these things whenever he wouldn't uh, do what he was supposed to. And, and Robert said, you know, I nearly gave up on that dog a hundred times. Nearly gave up on that dog a hundred times. But I, for some reason, I didn't. He said, and then one day, it just it clicked with Walker what his job was. It clicked with me and Walker about our relationship. And, and we're riding along, and Robert's telling me this. And you, have you ever seen somebody when they're riding, they're kind of telling a story, but they're somewhere else? You know, they're, he's reliving all of these hundreds of incidents and everything. And so I'm riding along just listening. And then he said something, and when he said it, man, it was like a thump on my ear. I mean, I just, I literally felt God say, did you hear that? That was important. And what Robert said to me as we're riding along, he goes, you know what I learned from Walker? I said, what? He said that most people give up too quickly on dogs, horses, and people. I was like, wow. I didn't know you were that smart, Robert. No, I didn't say that. I thought that. 
I thought that, but I knew it was the Holy Spirit speaking through him, so I knew it didn't come from him. Not really. I, I, I love that man. But uh, anyway, but it's true. I, I, I think that we've all, if you've had dogs, horses, or even if you've had people, we've all felt like that, just, just wanting to give up, you know, give up on them. And when Robert said, you know, I think that most people give up too quickly on dogs, horses, and people, I thought of many instances where that was the case. And as far as horses go, Fiona was one of those horses for me because when we first got her, she was great for about a week, and then she tried to buck you off every time you got on her for the next two years. I didn't give up on her, mainly because she couldn't buck very good at all. It was kind of like she could buck about as long as I could do jumping jacks, which is not very long at all. And so, anyway, he said, don't give up too quickly on dogs, horses, or people, and Fiona was my horse in that instance. And there's been more than a few people that I've wanted to give up on that I didn't, that just turned out to be so, so remarkable. So today we're going to look biblically at three people that God didn't give up on. Three people that God did not give up on, regardless of what was going on in their lives. I mean, just like Walker, I'm sure in God's eyes, these people were not heads. They wasn't doing anything that they were supposed to be doing, no matter if their intentions were good or bad or whatever. But God never gave up on them, and as a result of God never giving up on them, amazing things happened. The first one we're going to talk about, you've probably heard the name before. It's a female. Her name is Rahab. And Rahab was a prostitute in Jericho. Now, if you don't really know the story of Rahab, here's a quick summation of it. She is a prostitute in Jericho, and the Israelites are coming up out of Egypt. They've got this massive army. God has told them to go into Canaan, and that's what Israel was called back then, uh, to take Canaan back and make it their own, a fulfillment of prophecy. And so one of the first towns they come to is Jericho. It's right by the Jordan River. And, or, you know, just, uh, let's see, just west of the Jordan River. And, that's, you know, that's why they call it the West Bank in Israel, because it's the West Bank of the Jordan River. So Jericho's in the West Bank, modern day. And so uh, the Israelites send two spies into Jericho to scout it out, you know, make a game plan. I'm talking about, you know, seal and sniper stuff, right? They go in there to infiltrate and... Somehow Jericho finds out that these, there's spies from the Israelite army in there, and so they start trying to find them, and these guys are going to get killed if they're found. And this Rahab, a prostitute, finds out who the spies are, and she hides them and helps them on the condition that they will save her family, her and her family. And sure enough, that's what comes to pass. So, I, you know, I, I don't really know the answer to this, but... I think it's safe to say that if they were not the only survivors from Jericho, Rahab and her family were one of the few survivors of Jericho after the Israelite army came in. And if you remember the biblical story of, you know, marching around and blowing the trumpets, and on the seventh day the walls came tumbling down, they made a little kid's Sunday school song out of it and stuff like that. So Rahab and her family are, one of the, are some of the few survivors to come out of that, but that's not the greatest thing that happened to Rahab, the prostitute, she ends up marrying an Israelite named Salmon, or if you're from Texas, Salmon. Not, not really. Not really. We don't say we don't say Salmon. I had a friend that that worked at a real high-end fancy steakhouse, 
And their manager told them that there was only one grounds for immediate dismissal, and that was if you ever pronounce salmon with an L. So she meets this guy named Salmon, okay? He was a fishy dude, but um, that's better than my first deal joke. That wasn't in the notes. I came up with that right then. It passed the filter. And uh, lost my train of thought with it. So that's not the most amazing thing that happened to Rahab being rescued. It's very climatic, but she meets this guy named Salmon. They get married. They have a kid. This kid's name is Boaz. And you might have heard of Boaz, too, because when Boaz gets older, he marries a woman named Ruth, who there's an entire book of the Bible about. So there's this amazing woman that you've probably heard the Bible quote, where you go, I go, where you stay, I stay. That's Ruth talking to her mother-in-law, Naomi, because uh, Ruth was married to Naomi's son, and Naomi's son is killed. And uh, even then, Ruth is a Gentile. She's not an Israelite. And so um, here's Salmon that marries a Gentile, meaning not Jewish woman. Not only is she a former prostitute, but she is not even an Israelite. And they have a son named Boaz, and Boaz follows in his daddy's footsteps and marries uh, somebody that's not a, uh, not a Jewish or not an Israelite. And if you go to Matthew chapter 1, which you don't have to, I'm going to tell you what it is. If you go into Matthew chapter 1 and you look at that boring stuff, the lineage of Jesus, Rahab the prostitute is listed as one of his ancestors. Somebody that started out as a prostitute, God did not give up on them. Even though she was living a life that was so far from God that, you know, I don't know that you can get much further than that. But yet God didn't give up on her. And she ended up being an ancestor of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ through the line of Joseph. I really doubt that anybody in here has ever prostituted themselves in that manner. But I, did you know that I nearly prostituted Save the Cowboy before it even started? Meaning I, I nearly sold out of my soul. Because when I first moved up here, um, my pay had been cut in half. I had two jobs, but both jobs cut my pay in half as a trial run for me living in Colorado. And so my pay was cut directly in half of both jobs. And it's twice as expensive to live in Colorado as it was in West Texas. And I was hurting financially before we ever even got started because I was doing this completely on my own. Well, I heard uh, through, through the grapevine and a buddy that there was a denomination that was wanting to uh, start some cowboy churches. And they heard about me and my experience as being a cowboy pastor down in Texas, and they wanted me to come to this uh, training deal or presentation about starting a cowboy church. And so I went, and they, man, it, their heart was in the right place. They said, you know, um, we have realized that we've been doing church this traditional way, but there's a segment of the population that they're just not going to step foot in our church, but they may step foot in an ag building and, and come to know God, and we want to help in that endeavor. And boy, they made a, a great, great presentation. And I mean, I was... I hadn't bit the lure, but man, I was following it real close, kind of nudging it a couple of times. And so we went to break for lunch, and I sat down with this, with this head honcho that was kind of doing everything. There were several of them there. And so I'm sitting there having lunch with him, and he says, 
well, what do you think so far? And I said, man, y'all are doing a great job. I really appreciate what y'all are doing. And he asked me a few questions, and I told him, he looked around, kind of make sure nobody was really listening. And he leaned forward, and he goes, before you leave here today, I'll give you a $50,000 check to start your church with. I didn't have $500, much less $50,000. And so I was just like, man, you know, maybe this is an answer to prayer because I moved up here on faith knowing that God was going to help me start a cowboy church. And man, this dude just offered me 50 grand to use however I needed to to start this church. And all we have to do is just you know, go with their denomination. Well, after lunch, we were, they continued on. And around 3 o'clock, they were summing everything up. And this same guy that I had lunch with looks out, and there's about as many people at this church planning presentation as there is now, you know, 50, 75, maybe 100. And um, at the very end, he said this. He said, we cannot wait for y'all to go back to your hometowns and start these cowboy churches and reach these cowboys and cowgirls for God and be under the direct authority of the regional superintendent. What? What would you say? And so I was just like, you ever felt that? So I took a deep breath, and, you know, we all clapped, and we're kind of milling around there drinking coffee, and the same guy comes up, and he goes, what would you think? And I said, I just got one question, amigo. He said, what is it? And I said, what's the deal with this regional supervisor that's going to have direct authority over me? He goes, oh, he's just a guy, you know, I mean, we're giving you $50,000, so there has to be some accountability. I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm completely fine with accountability, but I've got one question. He said, what? I said, could he fire me? He said, he can't even walk in your church without your permission. I said, I didn't ask if he could walk in the church. I said, could he fire me? He said, he would never do that. I said, I didn't say. I didn't ask if he would ever do something. I said, could he? And this guy turned red. I don't know why everybody gets mad when I talk. He got real red, and he said, well, because I'd backed him into a corner. He knew it, and I knew it. And I just, but I wanted an answer. And he said, well, the answer to your question is yes. He could fire you if there was evidence of sin or being unbiblical in your life. And I said, you fire me now. Fire me right now because, you know, I mean, I said, who's without sin? He goes, well, you know what I mean. I said, no, I don't know what you mean. It's one guy's version that I could work for 10 years and then I say something, like I did in the first service. I could say one thing, forget about the other 99,000 things I've said that was good. I say one thing bad and they can come in here and jerk everything away from me. I said, no thanks. I walked out of there and nearly threw up. I had to buy my own plane ticket there and back. I didn't have the money for that. I didn't have the money for anything. But that night, I stayed with a buddy of mine that had invited me down there. And while we were talking about the church planning school and all of that, Jake looks at me, my buddy, and he said, if you were going to start your own, what would it look like? And for the next three hours, there was Save the Cowboy. And if I would have gone with them, I would have prostituted out my ministry to a denomination, and I don't have anything against them. I don't, not by any means. But if I would have sold out to a denomination, this wouldn't look like what it looks like today. And I'm so glad that I didn't. So we can learn some examples from Rahab. Sure, we may not be prostitutes in the biblical sense, but that doesn't mean that it's not easy to sell ourselves out to something that we know that we shouldn't do. God didn't give up on Rahab, even though she was selling herself out. 
But you know what? Before we're too hard on people like Rahab or like me, we've got to understand a few things. Number one, God's not going to give up on them. Okay? If they're still... If their heart's still beating and their lungs in, in your, in, in their, if there's air in their lungs, God ain't gave up on us yet. And he didn't give up on Rahab because you know what? Sometimes people need to make a bunch of wrong decisions before they can make one that is right. Don't give up on them. No matter what somebody is doing in their lives, man, it, it may be as far as, as a prostitute would be from the way God wants us to live. Don't give up on them. Now, I'm not saying, because I have to clarify everything, because... People try to place words into my mouth that I didn't say. I said, don't give up on them. I didn't say that you had to stay in an abusive relationship, okay? I didn't say that it was okay to, you know, somebody molested your kid to don't give up on them and let them back into your house. I'm not saying that. We can, by not giving up on them, that means always wanting them to know God and wanting them to be saved. That's what I mean by don't give up on them. Sometimes people need to make a bunch of wrong decisions before... They can make one that is right. Don't give up on them. And some people get so caught up in just doing what they can that they don't stop and ask themselves if they should. Don't give up on those people. Haven't we all been there sometime in the past? When we're so tied up in doing what we can to live, to survive, to succeed, whatever it is, sometimes we get caught up, so caught up in doing those things of doing what we can that we don't stop and ask if we should. Those type of people, man, don't give up on them. God didn't. We shouldn't either. And you know what? I think there comes a point in time that's the right moment at the right time with the right maturity, with the right growth, with the right situation. Sometimes people just need the right situation to shine, to be able to make that change. And maybe those people's time hasn't come yet. You probably had yours. Don't give up on them until they have theirs. Talking about a reason to shine leads us to the second person that we'll talk about in the Bible that God never gave up on. This guy is a New Testament guy. Rahab was Old Testament. This guy's a New Testament guy. And he was a Pharisee. Now, if you don't know what a Pharisee is, a Pharisee was like a very religious person. They were the teachers, um, you know, to be a Pharisee, I think that you had to memorize every word of the Torah, which is the first four books of the Bible, word for word. I can't even hardly read some of, one or two of those books, the first four books of the Bible, much less memorize it. Okay, so that was that's saying something, right? But they were a Pharisee, okay? Now, the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of Israel. Now, there was a king, but there was a Sanhedrin. And Sanhedrin was kind of like Congress, Okay. And half of the Sanhedrin was Pharisees, the religious people, and the rest of them were Sadducees. And the Sadducees were like the wealthy business owners and stuff like that. So um, the Pharisees were part of the ruling class. Not all of them. They, I'm sure they were elected or chosen somehow. But a Pharisee meant they were somebody in Israel. Okay? You were a Pharisee. You wore certain clothes. People knew you were a Pharisee. And in order to get that, they knew what you had to do to get it. And they were very well respected. Some of them were outlaws. Okay? But not only was this guy that God didn't give up on a Pharisee. Now, Pharisees were right here. And that, maybe down here, like below this cement, were normal people. That's the way the Pharisees thought. They were above everybody else. Well, this guy's self-proclaimed title 
is not only was he a Pharisee so much above everybody else, he was a Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, he was better than all the rest of the Pharisees. I mean, this guy was full of himself. This guy just really thought that he knew it all, could do everything right, he'd never sinned, and, you know, just all of this stuff. And you've probably already figured out that at the time, this guy's name was Saul. Saul was a Pharisee who volunteered to round up Christian leaders and have them imprisoned or killed. Paul, or Saul was a self-righteous, religious, murdering bigot that ultimately got his name changed to Paul and wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Thank God that he didn't give up on him. Thank God that God didn't give up on him. I mean, this guy Saul, he was a bad hombre. He really was because... You know, maybe he didn't kill somebody with his own bare hands, but the first martyr in the New Testament was a fellow named Stephen who was in charge, was one of the few people in charge of the food distribution to the Greeks. And when Stephen was stoned, Paul held everybody's cloaks. And I don't mean the Colorado type stoned, okay? I'm talking about like they, they rocked him. They threw rocks at him till he died, okay? We can't even call that boulder, can we? Anyway, so hard preaching in Colorado. But anyway, so, so they killed Stephen by throwing rocks at him, and Saul looked on holding the cloaks of all the executioners. Wasn't a very nice guy. Paul was a self-righteous, religious, murdering bigot that ultimately wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. Anybody ever known somebody kind of like that? A self-righteous, religious bigots? You know what those people are? They're oversaved. You, ever, you know what oversaved is? You're oversaved when you team up with God for your salvation. I, I, I think that those oversaved, these really religious nut jobs, I guess I should, I shouldn't say that either. So hard to love. These self-righteous religious people, um, they are oversaved because I think that they have a feeling that they team up with God in their salvation and others. Like, I know God saves, but, you know, he came a little bit short, so I stepped in and I gave him a hand in my salvation. Look at me up here. You know? And it's not just in their own salvation. You know, suddenly they represent God on earth, and now their word is God's word, and they go out and save people. Nah, it doesn't, it doesn't happen like that. That's where religion gets into their minds and blah, blah, blah. You're oversaved when you use, or a person is oversaved when they use religion as a weapon for control instead of a path to freedom. And we've all known people like that, that, you know, the, the, God's word is a sword, but it wasn't meant to necessarily be used on innocent people, right? I mean, it, it's to combat evil, not kill people, okay? But those oversaved, really religious people, man, they, they use religion as a, as a battering ram as to, to try to make themselves look better. A person is oversaved when they think that their relationship with God puts them above people, makes them better than everybody else, you know. And if you really look at Jesus, Jesus was better than everybody else. Jesus was perfect, right? But at the same time, did Jesus lord that over people? No. As a matter of fact, one of the last things he did on earth before his crucifixion was to take his outer garment off, wrap it around his waist, get a bucket of water, and wash them on nasty dude's feet. I mean, that, that's what Jesus, that was one of the last things Jesus did of his own volition, was to wash somebody's feet. He didn't come here to, you know, have people bow down to him and do what he said and smite people. 
He showed us how to live, and he's like, man, the, the closer you are to God, the lower you humble yourself to serve others. And he showed us the roadmap to do that, but, but really religious and oversaved people, man, they just think that they're better than everybody else. But even with all of those type of people, the oversaved, the uber-religious, the ones that use religion as a weapon, don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Because God didn't give up on Paul. We shouldn't give up on people like him. Because you know what? Sometimes God needs to send a smackdown message to get through the pride, ego, and self-righteousness. And see, Paul had one of those smackdown messages you you heard the term come to Jesus meeting? Well, Saul had the first literal come to Jesus meeting with Paul. Okay? He walking down the road at a slow trot, and all of a sudden the blinding light knocks him off his horse, knocks him to the ground, and a voice starts talking to him and says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul says, Who are you, Lord? And he says, well, I'm Jesus. And Saul had a come to Jesus meeting. From then on, from that point on, Saul couldn't see. They took him into town, and God sent another fellow to come over and baptize Saul and change his name to Paul. And when, when, when they prayed over him and baptized him, it said, the Bible says that scales fell off of his eyes. And I think that just in mine, I don't know that there's any biblical evidence of this. It's just the way I try to visualize things. I think of those scales that are falling off was the pride and the ego and the self-righteousness that was falling away to make room for God's power in his life. And oh my gosh, did God make room for his power in Paul's life. So even when you run into these self-righteous, these religious know-it-alls that use God's word as a sword, man, don't give up on them yet. Don't give up on them. God's not giving up on them. And we're supposed to follow God, so we're supposed to follow his example. I'm not saying that you got to sit there and let them cut your throat or anything like that, but we can continually pray for those people. You know, but why do they act like that? I've got a theory. Well, let me tell it to you. See, the need to be right, because those religious people are always right, and they'll throw Bible verses at you, and then you throw another one, and suddenly you're in a sword fight, you know, to the death. These really religious people, they have a need to be right. And I think that often it's a trauma response because of the vast insecurity these people possess. When you run into somebody like that, don't give up on them. Man, in all actuality, the need, that that pride, and that ego, and that need to always be right, you know what it is? It's a traumatic fear response because they're scared. They're scared of somebody being above them. So they try to get so far up there that nobody can get to them. They think that people are going to think less of them, so they go out and they proclaim themselves to be something that they're not. They're just scared. And I think that when we can look at them in that light, that, oh, you're, you're braggadocio and you're, your ruthlessness and all of that. Man, really all this is, this man, this woman, this grown-up man, this grown-up woman that I see here, it's just a costume for the scared little kid inside of you, man. If you'd let all that stuff go, man, God could fill you with power that you never knew you could possess. But you got to make room. Those scales have to fall off. But no matter how they act, don't give up on them. I'm not saying that you got to be best friends with them. I'm not saying that you have to be in an abusive relationship or anything like that. I'm saying continue to pray for them. Don't give up on them. Because there was a guy named Saul that was just like that that God ended up using amazingly. There was a prostitute named Rahab that God never gave up on. And when I think about these two people, I can't help but think of Jeremiah 29, 11, 
For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good, not for evil. Plans to prosper. And when he says prosper, that doesn't mean he's going to make you rich. Jesus said, store up your treasure in heaven. That's what that means. Don't give up on them yet. When we look at these people with the understanding that it's not an attitude problem as much as it is a security blanket for their fragile egos, maybe, just maybe, it'll be just a little bit easier not to give up on them. But there's one more person in the Bible that I think combines both of these situations. I mean, you, you look at Rahab as far from God on this side as you can get, prostitute, living in sin. And then you've got Paul, or Saul at the time, who was at the other end of the spectrum. He was the religious, know-it-all, bigot, you know, willing to kill for God. It's, I, it just it baffles the mind, right? But there's another person in the Bible that kind of combines those two people. And then I think that we can relate to, I mean, I'm sure that we can all relate to Rahab and Paul in, in certain aspects, but I think there's another person mentioned in the Bible that we can really, really relate to. And they're found in an unexpected place. They're found in the most famous Bible verse in the entire Bible. They're mentioned in John 3.16. And I'm going to read it out of the Simplified Cowboy Version because I can. This is how much the boss loves his hands. He sent his only son, the top hand, that everyone who believes in him shall not perish but live forever on God's outfit. Did you see who it was? It was you. It was you. Yeah, we can relate to Rahab a little bit. Maybe even Paul a little bit. That other person that God hadn't given up on is you. Is you. Because you know who I think you are? You're probably not that much different than me. You're just a cowboy or cowgirl doing the best you can while sometimes selling out on things that are important and thinking, hoping that we're always right and woe to the person that says we're wrong. We've all fit that in some form or fashion. But the third person that we can really, really relate to, that God's not going to give up on the Bible, or in the Bible, is you, is me. Because God hasn't given up on the person that's made a bunch of wrong decisions, but would like to start trying to make some right ones. God doesn't give up on that person. God hasn't given up on the sinner that is just trying to take care of their family the best way they know how, which a lot of times in a worldly sense is, how can I take best care of my family the easiest way possible? God's not going to give up on that type of person. He's not going to give up on me, and he's not going to give up on you. God hasn't given up on the one that hasn't had that come to Jesus meeting. And you know what I can say? That God doesn't give up on those people that hadn't had come to Jesus meetings, because if they had had a come to Jesus meeting, they wouldn't be an on-again, off-again, lukewarm Christian, because once you come to face-to-face -face with Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, you can't help but be changed. You can't help but have those scales of fear and pride and ego fall out of our face and start following God the way that we know we should. Does that mean that we won't make a mistake? No, no. Mistakes have nothing to do with it. It's about heart, where your heart lies. How do I know that God's not going to give up on us? Because the Holy Spirit, through the Apostle Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, there's a pterodactyl up here. Don't you see that? No, it's just a fly, but it turns into moths. 2 Peter 3, 9, simplified cowboy version, says this. The Lord isn't slow-bucking his promises to us. He's being patient with all of us so that, so that all who can be will be saved. Think about that. The Lord isn't slow-bucking his promises to us. He is being patient with all of us so that all who can be will be saved. Who can be saved? Anyone. The will be depends on our hearts. God is sitting there. He ain't not given up on you. 
He didn't give up on Rahab the prostitute. He didn't give up on Paul or Saul the Christian killer. And he's thinks you're not going to give up on you. He's being patient with you so that you can be saved, so that you can spend eternity in heaven, face to face with God, with no pain, no suffering, with a new body, a new outlook for eternity. Eternity is not the elongation of time. It is the absence of it forever. God is being patient and has not given up on you. Don't give up on you either.